Numbers 21. It's good to see everyone here. If you're visiting with us, we welcome you again. And we are glad that you're here. Look forward to seeing you again soon, we hope. Come back Wednesday night. We'll meet at 7. Next Sunday, we'll meet at the same time as we met today, 9 and 10. And again, Sunday evening at 5 o'clock. There are these passages in the Old Testament that are they're not funny at all. Um, so I shouldn't even smirk at them. But for some reason, they, it, it, I don't know what it is. It strikes me as maybe so, so childish, some childish behavior on, on the part of the Israelites, the Israelite people, that you just want to throw up your arms in exasperation as to why, they, why did they act like that? Now, I'm, what I'm talking about are those, all those scenes in the Old Testament where they whined and grumbled and complained, right? You know some of these stories. They're all over the place. Uh, I mean, you can go back, and we're not, we're just going to look at this one, but in your mind you can go back to like Exodus 14, 15, right along in there after the Passover and after they crossed over the Red Sea, the story of the Exodus from Egypt, you know, they'd been slaves for 400 plus years and God led them out through the leadership of Moses, crossed over the Red Sea. It wasn't just a, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't any time at all they were complaining, you know? We don't like this. We don't like that. We don't have enough water. We don't have enough food. We don't like the food. We used to not have enough food. Now we got enough food. We don't like the way it tastes. It's getting old. We're sick of it. And they would, they would complain. And it seems like it kind of escalated. It, it happened. It, it happened again. God, God would respond to them. At times he would respond and just give them what they were complaining about or respond to their complaint. They didn't have, uh, they didn't have water, so God gave them water. They didn't have food, so God gave them food. And then you come to stories like this one. And in Numbers 21, the, the text we're going to look at is verses 4 through 9, where they're complaining again, and God sends the snakes amongst them. And it's a pretty bad scene. But the, the background of this, just, just so we're on the same page and we know what period of history we're talking about, they, they crossed over the Red Sea. The book of Exodus is about that. They give, God gives them the law. And that's what Exodus and Leviticus... Are about and then at, at the first part of the book of Numbers, the early chapters, they go to the land of Canaan. God had promised them that land, you know. He had promised Abraham the land, Isaac, Jacob. So after many many years, God is giving them that land. And they get to the edge of it, Numbers thirteen, and they send some spies in, some scouts in. They scout out the land, come back after forty days, and say, ten of them say, all of them say, well, it's a beautiful land. Ten of them say we can't take it because it's too strong. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, say, no, we can do it because God's with us. And so you have that whole thing. They listen to the faithless spies there in Numbers 13, and then they, 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 they form a rebellion. We're not, we're not going to go. We, we, we're going you know, to raise, we're going to have another leader besides Moses. It's just an ugly scene. That's kind of like the, the, the pinnacle of their rebellious spirit right there. God says, okay, I'm done with this generation. You're going to go back into the wilderness, and you're going to wander around as long as it takes for this generation to die out, 40 years. So that's where we are in this, in this text. They're wandering around, and lots of bad stuff is happening. Uh, if, you, you know, if you were just to go back in the chapters, you'll, you'll notice several things. You'll, you'd notice back in number 16, the great rebellion with Korah, Dathan and Abiram, three guys who started a rebellion. It was another leadership spat. They wanted to take over. They didn't like Moses' leadership and all that. So you've got that, and God opened up the earth and swallowed 
all these rebellious people. So that's just a few chapters earlier. You kind of get the sense, and I think you'll notice this, uh, uh, an escalation of God's response. He responds early on with, I guess what we would call maybe some, well, I've described it as patience, I guess. Not that God loses his patience, but he responds and gives them whatever they're complaining about. You know, he, he helps them. But then it seems as if their rebellion just gets worse and God changes the way he responds to it. And so when you get to our chapter, well, one, one more thing. The previous chapter, you have Moses' rebellion. So you've got all these acts of rebellion, and then it, it, it almost is like it culminates in Numbers 20 with Moses. Moses strikes the rock instead of speaking to it, and God says, okay, Moses, you're also not going to get to go on the land. You, you've done the same thing they did. You rebelled against me, so you're not going to go on the land. And then we come to Numbers 21. So that's where we are. This generation is going to eventually die out, and they're not going to get to go in. But here, they're still with us. And so you've got this, this little sordid section of their history. Let's read it together, okay? Numbers 21, and I'm going to read six verses, Numbers, verses uh, 4 through 9. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Does that sound familiar? If you, if you read Exodus or Numbers lately, it, it would, uh, because they said that a lot. You brought us out here to die in the wilderness, for there's no food, no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now, this, so a little, little paragraph, it's almost like, it's kind of weird. You just have this story right there, and it goes on. It's like, okay, you know, moving right along, and there's a, this, uh, this next song that they sing in, in the next little paragraph, and then they defeat King Sion. So you've got this little paragraph right here. Now, the reason I want to talk to you about it tonight, well, a couple of reasons. One, it illustrates a problem they had, a persistent problem they had all over the place. But, but number two, Jesus talks about it. I think all the Bible is important. I think all the Old Testament is important. But when the Lord refers to an episode, it makes us listen up a little bit more closely. And Paul also talks about it in 1 Corinthians 10. So Jesus does in John 3. Paul does it in 1 Corinthians 10. So if Jesus talks about it, and he says, oh, you need to learn something from that story. And if Paul talks about it, he says, hey, you need to learn something from that story. And his lesson is different from the one Jesus teaches us. So you got two more reasons why we ought to pay attention to what happens in Numbers 21. So let's talk about the story, just the face of it, you know, what happens here. And then we're going to go look at what Jesus says. Then we're going to go look at what Paul says and think about, okay, that's, that's what it means to us. This is how we ought to read the story. So basically, I mean, the story is pretty easily understood. The context is they're, they're wondering, this is a rebellious generation. And you see that again and again and again. The way their rebellion manifested itself repeatedly was they didn't trust the leadership of Moses. 
And they didn't trust really what that ultimately was, though. They didn't trust God to do what he said he was going to do. They didn't trust him to take them into the land. So they kept rebelling. And, and it's different ways, but it's the same spirit. So it just manifests differently. And you see the complaining, grumbling thing, which I'll come back to in a bit. Uh, but it, it's all over the place. So what happens here? They became impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses. Uh, scholars who read Hebrew uh, suggest to us that the way that this is worded probably heightens the rebellious spirit here because something about the way verse 5 is written, the subject is the people, and, and all, that's very rare in the book of Numbers. It, it usually, the subject of, of the sentences mostly is going to be God or Moses. And, and the way this is framed in verse 5, the people spoke against Moses, it puts it in some sort of in, in, an emphatic position suggesting this is, this is a big deal. Like the people are really, really acting in ways that are inconsistent with their calling. So the people, it's just, uh, that, something about that. The people spoke against God. It's a very active kind of thing. And the statement they said is, we've heard before, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? You brought us out here to kill us. Don't have any food. Isn't this funny? I mean, it's not funny, but there's no food, and there's no water, and we hate this food. I mean, that's kind of funny, isn't it? We don't have any food to eat, and we hate this food, you know? We don't think rationally. You make irrational statements when you lose your hope when you lose your confidence, when you're not thinking clearly. There's no food, there's no water. We hate this worthless food. The words there are strong. The words there are very emphatic and demonstrative. This is despicable food. We hate this food. We're sick of this food. And you, you don't have to go back very far to see that same kind of complaining earlier. Lord, we don't like the way you're taking care of us. They complained when they didn't have any food. When God gave them the food, they complained about the kind of food that he gave them. So we'll come back to that complaining idea in a minute. It's probably something we all need to hear. God sent these fiery serpents. Now, you may be interested or not in this sort of thing, but there are a lot of snakes in eastern Jordan that can kill you. And this one, just out of, for, for curiosity's sake, we don't know for sure, but everything in the Bible people have argued about at some point or another. And this is one of those. This, the, the word, the ESV translates it, um, the fiery serpents, you know. It's a word that means burning. Uh, it could just mean, and your translation may have it, venomous serpents. That could be all it means. These are just poisonous snakes. They're, they're venomous snakes. <clears throat> it could refer to the burning sensation you get when you're bitten by one of them. Uh, and it probably refers to one of these kinds of venomous snakes that are common there in the eastern Jordan reason, uh, region. Uh, one scholar suggested probably uh, it's this snake called a carpet viper. Does that sound pleasant to you? A carpet viper? It sounds pleasant. It probably shouldn't. A horn viper, a puff adder, cobra, black snakes, carpet vipers, and sand vipers all in this particular area, with the worst of those being the carpet viper. Creates a burning sensation when you're bitten by them, very deadly, and that's the most deadly snake in the region. So, scholars speculate God probably chose the carpet viper. This is not, I, I guess what, what reason I'm talking about that is I don't want you to get the idea that God created some sort of, like, um, snake that was burning, like some fiery serpent. Don't get that image. That's probably not what he's talking about. He's probably talking about a serpent that was in that area, a snake that was common to eastern Jordan, and it was venomous. 
maybe just venomous or maybe venomous and there's this great burning sensation which I don't know enough about snake bites to know if some can bite you and kill you without you feeling the burning sensation but regardless this is not a pleasant thing that's going on so that's what it's talking you know the fiery serpents venomous snakes just just keep that in mind bit the people many people died people pled with Moses they said pray for us intercede for us that see a pattern here they did this often Moses intercedes on their behalf and God responds and make a fiery serpent, some sort of a likeness of brass, uh, a brass serpent puts it on a, like a placard, some sort of a sign on a pole. And then, you know, the key verse here is at the end of this, if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. One of the things, if you're following along at the back of the bulletin, the, one of the questions I asked at the very beginning of this part was, now, doesn't this seem like an overreaction? I mean, why does God kill a bunch of people? I think in context, you look at the escalation here and you look at the pattern where God had repeatedly warned him, look, just trust me. Trust me. I will do what I said I'm going to do. Just trust me. I'll take care of you. I'll provide for you. I'll give you what I said. And so you've, you've seen this history. It's not like this is just everybody's happy, everybody's faithful, and all of a sudden they just rebel and God loses his temper and he kills a bunch of them. It's not like that. This is a pattern that's repeated itself again and again. These people knew better. They had seen how God responded to rebellion. They should have known better, and they chose, even in the face of that evidence, even though they knew how God responded in the past, they did it anyway. And God responds with certain punishment. So the provision God gives is this bronze serpent. All right. Now I want to turn, just for a minute, to John, 13, uh, John 3. John 3, because I want you to hear how Jesus uses this story. Completely differently from the way Paul does. So, I, you know, if you're thinking about a way to apply stories, sometimes we don't have this. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we don't have any reference in the New Testament to a, to a story in the Old Testament, and so we're left kind of trying to figure out how we might think about it. And then sometimes we have one reference to it, and that helps. In this case, we have two references, and that really helps. References. John 3, look at this. This is in the conversation with Nicodemus, this fellow who came to Jesus by night to ask him some questions. So Jesus has this long conversation with him. And I want to read the paragraph it's in, starting in verse 9 of John 3. So Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him. Jesus is talking about being born of the Spirit, born of the flesh. Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. All right, here it is. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Probably the most famous verse in the Bible, in the Christian Bible, right? Verse 16. So this is right there in that context. So Jesus uses this story, and he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. See, what you're going to find is here, Jesus uses the story to talk about the provision that God gives. And so... Again, if you're following along in the, on the back of the bulletin, what I want to do is we're going to use the story from Jesus to, to make one point of application. Then we're going to use the story from Paul to make the second point. And uh, so that's, that's the way we'll do this for the rest. 
So here's, here's Jesus' use of it. God provides for his people. And so Jesus says here, just as Moses, he uses this imagery, as Moses lifted up the serpent. So there's this idea of, of, of lifting up. Sometimes we use a language. I've used it before. You may have as well. In prayer or in conversation about the Lord, we might say, Lord, help us to lift you up. Or we might say to one another, you know, we just need to lift up Jesus. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But you need to understand how that phrase is used in the Bible. And it's used to talk about crucifying Jesus. That's, that's, that's what it means. Uh, we probably use it sometimes to say, we just need to lift up the name of Jesus in, in the sense that we need to, you know, put it up there where everybody can see it. You know, praise the name of Jesus. Nothing wrong with that kind of language, but it's not used that way in the, in the scripture. John 3, 14, right here, as Moses lifted up the serpent, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So you lift up the serpent so people can see the serpent. But Jesus was lifted up from the earth in crucifixion. And through that very action, salvation was offered. Let me give you two other times where this is used in the Gospel of John. John 8, 28, Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. What does He mean by that? He's talking about crucifixion. When you've lifted up the Son of Man, you'll know. When you've crucified the Son of Man, then you'll know. And then John 12, 32, this expression is used three times in John. The third one is in John 12, 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So what he's talking about there is crucifixion. So um, the, the parallel Jesus sees here, Moses lifted up the serpent on this pole. People looked at the serpent and they were healed. So Jesus will be lifted up from the earth on a pole, on a, on a tree, on a cross. And people will look to the cross and find salvation. So, you know, this is a great application of the story because ultimately, and this is an ultimate meaning to you and me in the sense that you can see all sorts of parallels. I don't want to stretch them too far, but I think this is okay to say this. These people were bitten by snakes. There's nothing they could do to be cured of their snake bite. They were helpless. They were dying. Uh, they, they were hopeless. There's nothing. They, could, they didn't have a cure for snake bites. Not from the carpet viper or whatever kind of viper this was. They didn't have a cure for it. Only cure was entrusting in the deliverance that God provided for them. So you obviously see the application to us. Caught in sin, certain death, no cure. We, didn't, we can't do anything to cure us of our own sinfulness. There's nothing we can All we can do is look at the one who's been lifted up. Trust in him. And God provides salvation through, through the cross. It's a great, great story, you know. Jesus focuses on the provision. But look at 1 Corinthians 10. And this will be the second point of application. 1 Corinthians 10. This one has to do with rebellion. So Paul, Paul uses what they did. Jesus uses what God did. We can legitimately make both applications. 1 Corinthians 10 Listen to verse 11 first, and then we're going to backtrack a little bit. First Corinthians 10, verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So Paul's saying, you got a lot of things in the Old Testament, and they were written there for a reason so that we might learn something from them. So this is that 
key verse in 1 Corinthians where we've often quoted, or, you know, legitimizing our use of the Old Testament. This, this is written for our learning. So what specifically is Paul talking about? Go back to verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now that's the story about Aaron and the golden calf, if you remember that. That's back in the book of Exodus. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. That is the, that's the rebellion that happened right after, it's later in the book of Numbers. It's, uh, it's after the Balaam Balak, if you remember the Balaam, the, the, the talking donkey, and Balaam, the prophet, false prophet. Now that, that story, it happened after that. Verse, verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. I think he's talking about the same episode there. And so these things happened to them as an example. They were written down for our instruction. Then verse 12, Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has taken you, but such as is common to man. And God will not allow us to be tempted above that which we're able. And so on. But right in the middle of that little section there, Paul's using, he's got a lot of stories to choose from, but he chooses our little story. And he says that is an illustration for God's people today. And so look at verse 9 again. We must not put Christ. Isn't this interesting how he phrases this? We must not put Christ to the test. So think about it. How do you put Christ to the test? He's talking about our story. How do you put Christ to the test? Well, by doing what they did. What, what did they do? Let's think about it for a minute. How do we do the same thing? What did they do? Well, they complained. Okay. They complained. But what did that complaining reflect? A lack of faith? A lack of trust? Certainly that. A lack of gratitude? That would, that would be a pretty hop on the list, wouldn't it? Lack of gratitude? Because God had provided for them, but they didn't like what God had provided. Um, they had short memories. They had forgotten about all the wonderful things God had done. These people, these people were, were alive when the Exodus happened. They had seen the Red Sea part. They, they, this is the same generation. They hadn't died yet. They had seen them. So they had, they had witnessed God's parting the Red Sea. They had witnessed His providing water for them, miraculous manna and quail. They had seen some of these incredible things. They had seen the smoke and the lightning and the fire on, the, on Mount Sinai when He gave the law. They had, they had seen His presence. They had seen His act. I mean, they had seen a lot of stuff. And now they forget that. And, and they're complaining and grumbling and murmuring. And it put Christ to the test. That's why He sent the snakes. It wasn't just a matter of grumbling. It was a matter of doubting the, the faithfulness of God. They put Christ to the test. And Paul says they were destroyed by serpents. And they grumbled and were destroyed by the destroyer. Let's think about an application for you and me. What about, what about complaining? What about complaining? I had a quotation here. Listen to this. This is from a commentary. I thought he put it pretty well. When a person's heart is intent on rebellion and beset by discontent, even the best of gifts from the Lord can lose their savor. Nothing will fully satisfy until the heart is made right. Unquote. 
I wonder if an application of the story for God's people ought to be, we need to be very careful about our complaints. Even when they're not directly addressed toward God, in some sense they're indirectly addressed toward Him, aren't they? If any of us, I'm not, I'm not saying that when you complain about the weather, you need to look for snakes in the grass. I'm not saying that. Or when you complain about that aching knee that's been bothering you for 20 years. I'm not saying that's equivalent. But, but I am suggesting to you something. That God's people ought not be characterized by persistent complaining and whining and grumbling like people who don't know the Lord. You ever been around somebody who just persistently complains? And probably most of us have, have been in that boat at one time or another where we're overwhelmed, we're discouraged, maybe we haven't slept much lately, and we're just, you know, at the end of our proverbial ropes, and, and we're just complaining. I don't know, there's a fine line there somewhere between you're expressing your unhappiness with the course of things in your life in a way that's healthy and you need to, you need to vent or whatever, I, but I... There's a fine line somewhere where we cross over into complaining in a way that displeases God. and I think we need to be careful about that. Sometimes we use an excuse like, well, I just need to vent or I just need to get that off my chest. Well, maybe, maybe you're just a complainer, you know? I mean, it might be a very real possibility that it's not just you need to get it off your chest. It might just be you got a problem that you need to address. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to us, you know, all of us, because we've probably all been there. But we, we, we as, as human beings, we live in a complaining, complaining world. I was thinking about this recently. Um, uh, I don't know, some of you I know use that, or have consulted that Nextdoor app. It's, uh, do it online, you can get it on your phone, and it's, uh, it, it's, it's organized by neighborhoods, you know, like you live in a certain neighborhood, some of you, some of you are on there. Uh, and so the next door app for our little area there, I don't know how, I don't know what the radius is, but people post, you know, I'm looking for somebody to do some sheetrock work or look, I found this dog in my yard. If it's, here's a picture of it, if it's yours, you know, I've, uh, come get it, I've got it, whatever, stuff like that. But it's, it's just interesting how it's created to be a kind of a, everybody just talking about stuff that might be helpful to one another. But I've noticed that there's a, there's a kind of a consistency there with some compl- people use it as an opportunity to complain. And it's like, I, I'm, you know, I saw somebody going, you know, four miles over the speed limit in my neighborhood, and, and I'm sick of it, and, you know, I'm calling the cops and, or whatever. And just these, these pop up, not all the time, and I'm, and I'm probably violating what I'm talking about by complaining about the complainers, right? <laughs> but... You know, there's, just, there's a tendency in us all to complain, right, to, to, to be malcontents. And there's something about that that's not consistent with following Christ. Um, and the Bible seems to take it seriously, and it has all sorts of warnings about complaining. So that's the way Paul takes the story. And he takes it to say to the church, and therefore to us, we need to be careful about grumbling because that is putting Christ to the test. That's not the way we usually describe grumbling. Because I think those are parallel statements. I think he's talking about the same episode. He says, put Christ to the test and we're destroyed. Grumbled and we're destroyed. I think he, he lined those up. Putting Christ to the test is complaining. Is complaining about the, indirectly at least, complaining about the faithfulness of God. 
And so as God's people, we need to be careful about our words. And, uh, and that probably applies to everybody in this room at one time or another, to some of us, maybe more so than others, depending on our bent, you know, the way we're, the way we're wired, the way we've developed an attitude and that we approach difficult situations. So, so two things. We'll close here. And the two things are, one, a warning, and number two, a promise. The warning is, be careful with your, uh, with your words and with your attitude toward what God has done for you. So many of the things that we complain about, uh, they're, they're, they're blessings, but maybe you know, complain about our kids, we complain about our jobs, instead of being thankful for our kids and thankful that we've got a job, you know, these sorts, these sorts of things. So we need to be careful about our complaining. And number two, uh, the promise of salvation through, through the greatest act of sacrifice ever. We'll close on that note. If you're not a Christian tonight, uh, Jesus was lifted up for you, lifted up from the earth. <clears throat> and people walk by and they, the Bible says they wagged their heads at him uh, because he saved others, but he cannot save himself, they said. They were partially true. Uh, they were partially right, weren't they, about what they said. He did save others, and he chose not to save himself so that ultimately he could save us. And if you're ready to put your faith in Jesus Christ, the one who was lifted up for you, then we're here tonight to give you that opportunity to confess your belief in him, put him on in baptism as your sins are washed away by his blood, and you receive the gift of God's spirit. Uh, you could become a Christian this very, this very evening. Maybe you need to come back to him because you've, you've strayed, you've rebelled against him, and you've lived a life that's persistently inconsistent with his will. Why don't you come back to him tonight? Let's stand and sing this song.